This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia, and welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is a towering figure in racial justice and the struggle for equality. His name has been invoked in Senate hearings across news networks and on the floor of the Supreme Court. His book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, spent nearly 50 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. In 2020, he was named one of the 100 most influential people of the year by Time magazine. Today, we are sitting down with professor, author, and activist, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Dr. Kendi was born in Queens, New York, but finished his secondary education in Manassas, Virginia, after his family relocated there in 1997. Dr. Kendi continued his education in African-American studies, eventually earning a PhD in the field from Temple University. Dr. Kendi went on to continue the examination of race relations and racism in the United States as a professor, essayist, historian, columnist, author, and most recently, as the host of a podcast through iHeartRadio. The podcast, Be Anti-Racist with Ibram X. Kendi, is a weekly interview show that discusses what it would mean and what it would take to build an anti-racist society. There is a lot I want to talk to Dr. Kendi about and even more I have to learn from him. So let's get started. Before we dive into your work and books and the new podcast and all of the projects that you're working on, I I actually love to start in reverse with my guests. You know, who were you before you were the doctor, you know, turning heads and giving TED Talks? Who was Ibram as a young man? What were you inspired by as a child? Were Were you always intellectually curious or, or were you completely different than the man who sits across from me now when you were 10 years old? So it's interesting. I, I feel like when I was 10 years old, I was almost at the height of my academic career. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I, I, uh, what does I think that like, mean? So like fourth, I think it was fourth grade. When we're 10, we're around fourth grade. I remember in fourth grade, that's when I, I think I did really, really well, like on all my finals. And I was like so proud. And my favorite teacher was my teacher in fourth grade, Mrs. Miles. But then it started going downhill from there. And by the time I got to high school, like I hated school. Uh, I struggled mightily freshman year. By the time senior year came around, you know, I didn't know whether I was even college material. And so I was quite shocked when a, when a college admitted me. And even I think most of my, even my academic career, I think because I struggled so often, particularly in middle school and high school, I think in, in many ways, maybe that's one of the reasons why I sort of push so hard and try to do so much um, mm. and have so much to prove in a sense. And then that was only heightened, I think, when, you know, I battled serious illness. But no, I mean, there was, when I was growing up, I, I would have, if somebody would have told me you're going to become a college professor and like read books all the time and and, and talk to people like you and, and, and give talks and write books, I would have been like, you crazy. <laughs> that's That's not happening. Gosh, that's funny to think of of you as a little kid going, no way, if, if you'd had a window into your future. What were you really into that fourth grade year? Were there books that really inspired you or, or was school as a whole just kind of full of possibility at that point? I was, I mean, I was really into sports. So I played baseball. Mm. Uh, I started playing baseball when I was six years old, I think. And uh, I was, I think I was just about starting to really play basketball, which growing up in New York City, I mean, that's what, that's what we did. We played mm. basketball. I mean, I think I, I still was interested in sort of inquisitive and had a sense of, of, of justice, I think a firm sense of justice, but it wasn't necessarily sort of tied to what it is now. Did that sense of justice have anything to do with your, your parents both being so tied into healthcare when you were growing up? I think that was sort of part of it. And even my, both of my, my father was a minister, um, you know, aside from his sort of career. And my mother became a minister when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And I think their ministry was was a justice-oriented ministry as opposed to a, I'm going to sort of talk down to people and, and tell people how they need to civilize themselves through the church. So I think their, even their ministry, I think, instilled in me a pretty strong moral compass. What was it like, especially to watch your mom step into a role like that when you were a teenager I think it was it was striking. I think it may have been one of the ways in which I first started to become aware of of sexism mm. and and even the way that women's bodies are policed because my mother would always wear like stylish uh, shoes and and sort of I mean she was quite stylish you know when she would go to church not stylish in terms of the terms of the way that an old lady with her with her hat but but stylish you know even though she was older I mean she would. Many people took her that she was like in her sort of 30s or 20s. And uh, and so obviously some of the older ladies in the church and many of the older men had had issues with the way she dressed. Mm. And then also the way she even preached. She was very direct and sort of in your face. I think some people had took issues with that as well. And obviously, I I mean, since it was my mother, I, I thought that they were crazy 
and it, and uh, but it allowed me to also start to see particularly as i stated the way in which women were policed in general in society yeah there's so much intimidation uh that comes sort of right to the forefront i think for many women who are outspoken um who choose to be political who choose to talk about justice in in my line of work i get a lot of uh can't you just stick to acting and i think how interesting you know do do we tell someone to stick to bank telling or um, to stick to cashiering? I don't know why I want to put the ING on the end of any sort of job a person could do, but this notion that especially if you're a woman, you're meant to do whatever it is you do in a way that doesn't inconvenience the people who interact with you. And I can only imagine in, in you know, a, a faith institution where there is so much traditional patriarchy often at play, what that must have been like in that era for your mom. Yeah, without question. And I think it's also, as a father raising a a daughter and sort of knowing the ways in which people are going, because of their sexist or patriarchal ideas, are going to tell her that she should not be speaking that loud or that forcibly or Mm. or demanding yes or no. I think it's been difficult for me because I'm always constantly trying to think through, you know, how do I empower her? Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically as as a man, as a sort of a male figure, how do, how do I normalize her pushing back? But then also, how do I be a father? <laughs> so it's like, it's a weird sort mm-hmm. of thing that I'm, I'm even personally trying to reckon with because I even think it happens before people become women, it happens to them mm-hmm. as girls and, and, and sometimes with, with family yeah. members. Oh my gosh. I went through a lot of that as a kid and I think being also very inquisitive and curious and, and just loving to learn, there were lots of people who didn't know what to do with me. And I sounded like this. From the time that I was, I don't know, eight or something. And I'd open my mouth and people were like, who is this little old man in this tiny girl's body? <laughs> you know? And, and my, my parents sort of found an example set. When I was in middle school, I started going to an all-girls school. And that, that was a place, just recently I, I saw my family on Father's Day and my dad was speaking about how he learned so much about ways to be my father by watching how I was being educated in an institution that prioritized the, you know, outspoken academic rearing of young women and that it helped him unlearn some things, which he'd never told me before. And I just thought it was such an interesting thing as an adult now to to hear from his perspective. And it just reminded me of how much the places where we learn can impact us forever. Oh, I mean, without question. (laughs) I think about it for you because, you know, you mentioned growing up in New York City. And I know that just before high school, where you also talked earlier about, you know, things shifting for you, you, you relocated to Virginia do you think that was part of that change for you at that time? Did you was that a wild experience, a culture shock to to make a move like that? Oh, yeah, without question. I mean, I grew up in Jamaica Queens, which was predominantly black um, and working class and, and even middle income neighborhood. And 
and then to move to Manassas, Virginia, which was a suburb of Washington, D.C., was predominantly white, predominantly uh, middle income, and even go to a high school named after a Confederate general, Stonewall Jackson, uh, and even down the road at Manassas Battlefield Park, that's where people would come to relive Confederate uh, war victories. I mean, it was like... (laughs) It was like night and day. And I also think, so my parents, when I sort of went to Stonewall, they decided to put me in these advanced sort of classes. And so I was typically the only Black student in the class or one of two. Again, I had my almost my entire sort of schooling life, I had been in predominantly Black classrooms. So to go from predominantly Black classrooms to being the only Black student, and then to to begin to see the ways in which people were seeing me as Black. So when you're in a Black space, right, people just see you as taller or shorter or lighter skin or darker skin. It's not that you're Black, right? But to experience that, and then also to experience the ways in which people were thinking that I was less than because I was mm. Black. And and even the ways in which people were not nurturing me or, or thinking that they should have high expectations for me because I was Black. And as being a sort of somewhat already sort of entering into the space with some, in which I was sort of lacking confidence, um, it almost reinforced that lack of confidence, which then led to this sort of downward spiral. If you don't mind me asking, because I'm I'm sure there are people who are listening to this who are thinking, what is that experience? And the, the closest, you know, uh, experience I've had in a version of what you're saying is when I, as a woman, I'm in spaces with all women. I'm very clear on the difference in what it feels like when I then enter into a room filled with all men or where I'm maybe one of two women. And so mm-hmm. I, I make a relative comparison only to to invite anyone at home who might be wondering ex- exactly what you mean to investigate whether they have a relative experience where they have felt um, either othered or perhaps a little unsafe in a space. I know that, you know, gender-based violence has, has definitely made me cognizant of, especially if it's late at night, if I'm in a space that's filled with all men and men I don't know, I feel very de... It feels very destabilizing. And so I I wonder, as a teenage boy, going from the experience where you're just you, because almost everyone around you looks like you, to you being one, one or maybe one of two Black students in some of these classrooms... When you look back, are are there facets of that experience that you could offer as an example to, to someone who's trying to learn about the experience of other people in rooms? That's a it's it's an incredibly important question. And I, I think that as one of the only black students, people who came from an environment in which you, I was exposed to the a huge diversity of, of, of Black people. Mm. When people would come to me to, quote, ask me questions about Black people, mm. <laughs> it would be very difficult for me to answer those questions because I'm like, I don't know, I'm just one Black person. But again, I, I think I had that perspective just because I knew so many different mm. 
Black people that I think if I would have grown up in that space and I wasn't exposed to as many Black people as I was growing up in Mm -hmm. Jamaica, Queens, I may have had a different perspective. Uh, So it was typically very uncomfortable for me when people would sort of ask me questions about Blackness or Black people as if I was some sort of representative or expert just because I was Mm -hmm. Black. You know, obviously, I think many people have talked about, and I think people can relate to this, when you are one, the only one or, or one of few and your group is discussed in the larger conversation, mm-hmm. it typically makes you feel uncomfortable, even if the group is being praised, right? But certainly if the group is being denigrated or if you're not talked about, it also makes you feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? If if you know that your group or the, a group that you're, you're a part of has made a contribution to that story, should be part of that story and is left out. And then what do you do? Do you do you sort of raise your hand and say, well, you why aren't you talking about Black folk? Why aren't you talking about women? It, it's quite uncomfortable. Um, and oftentimes when you are the only one, uh, no matter your sort of identity, it's oftentimes the case that you or people like you are just not talked about. Mm. So it's oftentimes that silence which then erases you even when you're there. Mm. And the dichotomy of that is really taking my breath away, the, the simultaneous potential to experience erasure and also to be made so synonymous with the group you're identified like, with that you are just... Like Yeah, it's almost like you're a yeah. generic representative of a monolith, but yeah. you're not a monolith. Yeah. Black people are not a monolith. Women are not a monolith. And and so what is what a strange sort of chasm to be stretched across where you're either erased or you're sort of given like a false iconography and neither feels authentic to you. And you, in your experience, are going through all of this, as you said, having moved to a place where the culture shock is real for you and you have to walk into your school every day and look at the name of a defender of... Slavery, I, like, I, I would have really struggled with that, and I, I'm sure in hindsight, given the work you do and, and the way that you unpack hundreds of years of you know American history and and the narratives we've told ourselves here, I imagine that's quite a paint by numbers of your own childhood life, where you're connecting all those dots. But but was was any of that something that consciously weighed on you at the time? Were were there conversations among students, even about changing the name of the school? Because I I know that they recently did, but but were people talking about this back then, or was that not a topic of discussion? So it it generally wasn't wasn't a a topic of conversation, of of discussion when, when I was there. And I think part of my struggle is that when I was at Stonewall, when I was in high school, in Manassas, Virginia, I had a sense of, of racism and and I could certainly identify it when I personally experienced it. But at the same time, I thought that I was sort of less than. I thought that I was the problem. I thought that Black youth are the problem. Part of the way in which I explained what I was experiencing and even what other Black youth in my class, or I should say school, was experiencing was to really consume just the widespread ideas in the 90s 
that there was something wrong with Black youth. And like, if there was ever a decade in history where Black youth were just consistently and constantly vilified, mm-hmm. you know, it was the 1990s. Most people, of course, know that is the decade when the term super predator sort of emerged. And that was specifically about Black youth, particularly preteens. Mm-hmm. But but that was also the, the decade where a no excuses school movement emerged, primarily to, quote, serve Black and brown students who it was imagined six-year-olds were making too many excuses. That was the decade in which it was imagined that Black teenage girls were having too many babies to, to get too much welfare. I mean, this was a, a a decade in which, in many ways, American politics revolved around this menace to society, <laughs> you know, Black youth. And I ended up consuming some of those ideas. And so my senior year, I ended up giving a speech for an MLK competition in, in which the speech was littered with all those ideas about what was wrong with, with Black youth. And I, t- I that's why I decided to really start even how to be an anti-racist with that story mm-hmm. because it just went to show just how seductive, just how widespread, just how it was even possible for for the victims of an idea to consume mm-hmm. it and then it, that impact their own life in, in the way that it did be and how I've spent the really the last 21 years trying to sort of unlearn them and learn anti-racist ideas. Mm. When you think back to that moment as a young man having internalized so much of our societal narrative about racism and in that moment you refer to in the 90s when all of these ideas were hitting the mainstream, how do you see it now? What what do you wish you could have explained to that teenage boy you know, if you could sit down with him today, what ideas would you want to challenge first for him? Wow. I think I would first say to that teenage boy that there's nothing wrong with you and, and, and people like you. I, I think that's first. Secondly, mm-hmm. that if, if people see you or view you as dangerous, that's a dangerous idea. You're not dangerous. And even the reason why uh, there's this relationship there was at the time and there is between, you know, higher levels of of unemployment and and higher levels of of violent crime. And Black youth, particularly in urban areas, had astronomically high levels of of unemployment in the 90s. And there was this massive upsurge over the course of decades from the 50s to the 90s in specifically Black youth being unemployed. And no one was looking at that as a, as a potential uh, explanation mm-hmm. for why you had some some levels of violent crime, that even when people did longitudinal studies and, and controlled for employment levels between white and Black youth, levels of violent crime were erased. Mm-hmm. So I, these are the types of things I would have shared. I would have also mm-hmm. sort of urged myself to not assess myself from what my classmates were thinking and and doing. And I would have urged myself to just have the freedom to be. I would have given myself probably some books by Zora Neale Hurston and James Baldwin. I would have wished I could have brought back Jason Reynolds and Jacqueline Woodson's book (laughs) and other of some of these great writers for young people today. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't really read that much in high school because the books that were offered through my classes were typically books 
that were just not interesting to me. I couldn't relate to. Uh, I didn't really dig Shakespeare much at all. <laughs> but once I got to, to college in my English 101 class, I was reading all this Black Lit. You know, I've been reading ever since. And isn't that interesting that you find something that opens up the way you see yourself? You know, that's the potential of a book. That's the potential of of study. And it, it makes me curious because you talk about that opening for you in college. And when you got your PhD at Temple, your dissertation was titled The Black Campus Movement, an Afrocentric narrative of the struggle to diversify higher education. And you studied the time period of 1965 to 1972. So was it this introduction to Black literature, these these spaces in which you finally felt seen that made you want to look back at ways in which education was not being diversified and and could be it was was that the was that the seedling that that planted then do you think i think so and and I, and i think especially when i when i learned that it was people my age you know black students and their allies of other races who who pushed for that mm. who who pushed to ensure that that the literature, that the histories uh, that we're teaching is really reflective of the nation, uh, of the people mm-hmm. who who are living here, that that even pushed for what Black students called the Black perspectives, the Black perspective. In other words, you, you can look at the same historical moment and see it from the perspective of, of Black people or white people or men or women mm-hmm. or, or queer or, or heterosexual you know, people, and and so just to see that that it was young people mm-hmm. uh, who were standing up and standing out and calling for an anti-racist education, I think inspired me, and I wanted to learn more about them and showcase them. I think about those young people petitioning to change the name of your former high school. Was it a surreal moment when you saw that there were young people petitioning to change the name of Stonewall to the Ibram X. Kendi High School? Was that? I mean, I know I know that they settled on the Unity Reed High School, which fine, great. But w- I just imagine, <laughs> you know, as a fan of yours, having watched it happen, I was like, is he having a real moment that they're trying to get his high school renamed after him right now? Because I, I don't know if you were, but I was having a moment for you. Did that feel so <laughs> surreal to think about as you'd gone back to study young students, to look at the young students in your former institution of learning who who are studying you? I mean, is is that mind blowing or did it did it not feel that way so much to you? No, it was it was definitely mind blowing. And it was it was definitely surreal and it was it was not something I ever thought was possible. I think what was striking was I I, I learned early on that they were considering, you know, changing the name and, and I had you know, since I had graduated, of course, I wanted that and, and, mm-hmm. and advocated for that. Never even thought for a second that that my name, I mean, I thought that was just, you know, crazy. And I had friends from high school who who texted me or called me and was like, are they crazy? They're really going to name it after you? <laughs> you know, saying it in a joking way. Um, and so I also liked that it allowed me to reconnect really with some, some high school mm-hmm. friends who I hadn't you know, spoken to, and they all thought it was either it was so cool or so funny. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, I mean, the fact that even I think not only that students 
sort of pushed for it, but even the descendant of Stonewall Jackson himself thought it was best for for the district to to rename it after me. And of of all the people, you know, for him to think that it should be named after me, I think was was certainly something that was touching. Mm. Yeah. And it really struck me as a as an example of the power of ownership and what that can mean energetically. The idea that we as a group of human beings can say, this is a wrong from our history. We'd like to rewrite it. We'd like to to shift how we talk about it. And when I saw that, that his great-great-grandson was behind the the petition, I just thought, that that to me feels like a type of reparation, a type of mm-hmm. a call, really, for repair. And, and what repair can mean, I think, in, in terms of our conversations about justice and about really facing the truth of America— when we talk about reparations, we do so financially. You know, we talk about, as you said, disparities and and really apartheid's in resources. I, I got to talk to a phenomenal um, advocate in the food justice space who said we have to stop talking about food deserts because the word desert is something natural. A food desert, an opportunity desert, these phrases we use— these aren't natural. These aren't deserts. They're apartheid. They've been, they've been created to cause disenfranchisement, and the disenfranchisement leads to harm. And, and we see the outcomes in everything from the way that black people are disproportionately killed by police to the way that black and brown communities have been disproportionately affected by COVID. There have been these resource apartheids that our history has created. And if we're unwilling to acknowledge it, and if we're unwilling to close those gaps with reparative resources, I, for one, don't know how we're meant to really move forward. And I, and I think about how, in terms of what we're discussing, the repair can be financial, the repair can also be in our language. And, and we need all of it, really. Oh, I, I agree. And, and, and we also need to realize that it's possible. Mm. And, and and what's striking, Sophia, is that when we take this off of race, there there are certain things that, that make sense. So to give an example, my, my father's father was not around. And, and so my father made it a mission that he was going to be different from his mm. father, right? That, that he was going to sort of be there for his kids. And so... When my father or other people whose fathers, you know, weren't around tell that story, people see them as wanting to change the story, you know, of their family. Mm. <laughs> and and it makes sense to people. But for whatever reason, you know, when, when you're a descendant of a slaveholder or a descendant of a of a Klansman or a descendant of, you know, a Jim Crow segregationist or slave trader, suddenly people want to quote, somehow defend their family member, or it wasn't that bad, or or I'm not sort of reaping the benefits, as opposed to saying, you know what? Yes, it was that bad. Mm-hmm. And I want to change the story on my family's history. You know, I want it such that a hundred years from now, when, when people think of my family name, they, they don't think of a of an enslaver. They think of someone like me who who fought against you know, slavery in prison in my era, mm-hmm. you know, and that's possible. And it's possible for 
families to change. It's it's possible for individuals to change. And and I think for I think one thing that I've tried to emphasize, even with the term racist and anti-racist, is for people to see these terms as not fixed. Mm. That, that these aren't fixed categories. That these aren't identities. This is this is what a person is being in any given moment. And people have the capacity to change. Mm. That's one of the things I think is so powerful about your book. And even in the way that, that, as you mentioned, you open it sharing a story of the the racist tropes that you as a young black man had internalized. And, and when you, there's something so powerful, I think, about when people talk about their own unlearning. When you are willing to learn in public and offer your own vulnerability of what you believed about yourself that was not true of something that you were raised to think was normal that you learned was not, of the statistical truths that you learn when you reference, you know, young white men and young black men and and crime rates, um, really what they're dependent on is poverty. I think what has been so powerful for so many people, myself included, who've read your book, is this idea, when we really get down to the language, that... We have made societally, and there are people who've pushed for this because it benefits their hysteria politics, but we've made the term racist. We've made it like a brand. We've made it something that if if you're deemed it, it's like on your forehead forever. And and what you argue, you know, for, for the folks at home, is <laughs> that it is an observation of an action. You can take a racist action, you can take anti-racist action, but the idea that that we are all so nervous to be deemed racist in a way makes us turn away or deny the racism that's everywhere in our society. These, these historical systems of oppression, um, when you talk about the enslavement of peoples in the era in which the slave trade existed, we can't divorce that historical reality from the current reality of the private prison system in America. We still enslave people just in different systems. And and I think this desperation for us in our most sort of small individual selves, which we all have, the desperation to be good, and to be worthy and to be alive for a purpose, it's it's difficult to say, oh, I come from this system. I was born in this system. I have benefited consciously or unconsciously from this system. It requires, as you've said, you said this in your TED Talk, I believe, it requires immense vulnerability to hold ourselves in the truth of this larger system we're all a part of. So how do you begin to delineate the line between racism as a system, racist policy as policy itself, and sort of de-identify people, readers, audiences you speak to, um, from the idea of 
being racist and instead talk to them about how their actions are racist or anti-racist? Well, first, I, I think what's striking right now in this very moment is one of the ways in which my work is being attacked um, is people are saying that I'm arguing that white people are inherently racist. And what's striking about that is that I actually argue directly against the idea that any group of people or even any person, uh, no matter their skin color, is inherently racist or anti-racist. And these constructs like, I don't have a racist bone in my body or, you know, that's not in my heart, that that these are all sort of fairy tales. Mm. Um, that what's actually the case, if we sort of break it down in its elemental sort of parts, you, you, you have racist and anti-racist ideas. Racist ideas connote that certain racial groups are superior or inferior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we don't typically use terms like inferior and superior. But So what we say is, well, this is what's wrong with Black people. This is the reasons why they're, they're dying at higher rates from COVID mm-hmm. or why there's higher rates of violent crime because of these behavioral or cultural sort of reasons, which are expressions of inferiority. Or this is the reason why white people have 10 times more wealth than, than Black people because of all these things they're doing well, which are connotations of superiority. Mm-hmm. But And so those are, they're racist ideas and they're anti-racist ideas. And anti-racist ideas challenge those ideas and, and convey that the racial groups are equals, despite any sort of differences, whether phenotypic or cultural. And then there are policies, as you stated, policies that lead to equity uh, and then policies that lead to inequity. And so the question for the individual especially when we think of these policies as a collection or meaning when you start thinking of policies as a collection, you start thinking of how they're forming a structure, Mm. a structure that sort of formulates racism or formulates a system. So that's when, when, when even people think of the term structural racism or systemic racism, what we're really talking about is this sort of collection of policies that lead to inequity and are substantiated by ideas that those of, of, of racial hierarchy. And so the individual is either challenging that structure by challenging those policies, by challenging those ideas, or they're reinforcing it. Mm. And, and what I've tried to do is separate uh, the term racist from identity. So it really doesn't matter whether you're your skin color, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, whether you're a Northerner or a Southerner, or you're an immigrant, whether you've you know lived in this country, whether you're progressive, whether you doesn't matter what you claim about yourself. All that matters is what you say and do. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's just like you know how I think more and more people are learning you know, from people like Brene Brown and others to to say to their kids, to not say, well, you're good or bad, you're a good or bad person, that you're actually, you you do good or bad things. It's the same sort of construct Mm. that it's about what we do. And, And then that what you do allows someone with diagnostic sort of tools to really assess what you're doing, to then diagnose you as racist or anti-racist in any given moment, knowing that in the next moment you could be the very opposite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a 
a sort of aha moment. Again, I always try to figure out what's my proximal relation to this idea. Because I can sit here as, you know, a friend or an ally and hear what you're saying and go, yep, I get that. And yet I know that your experience is not my experience. My experience can never be yours. So I think about things often as a woman. And when you told the story of that experience, you know, the MLK competition and giving that speech, I thought back to how in my early 20s, I thought such a badge of honor, such a compliment to me was when my guy friends would say, you're not like the other girls. And I wore that as this, it, it did, it felt like getting a Girl Scout badge. Like, I'm extra cool. I'm super low key. I'm not high maintenance, whatever that meant. And it took me until, it took me a decade of, of more reading and more understanding and more vulnerability and, and more really diving into what patriarchal policy looks like and how it doesn't just harm women, it harms everyone. Much like racist policy doesn't just harm people of color, it harms everyone. And I went, oh, that was, oh my God, that was my young adult self internalizing misogyny. But I've been steeped in it because it's like a tea that we brew in. Just like our our society with its racist systems mean we've all been soaking in this and we have to begin to look and find the places where it exists, where we have told ourselves that certain things are true because we've heard them and we haven't bothered to investigate where they come from. You know, the the trope that we hear so much now um, and that really was drummed up a lot uh, in political discourse during the Trump era was, you know, the, the quote unquote black on black crime. And it's like, that's actually not a thing. That's a trope that is utilized to harm a community rather than uh, us being honest enough as a society to look at what causes crime in any community. And so I guess I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> a bit stream of consciousness. I'm thinking with you in, in real time here because as we start to identify those things, you know, whether it's as women, the misogyny we've internalized as, as neighbors, the things we've heard and just assume our phrases for a reason rather than by design to continue to oppress people. Is that where the delineation between being, as you say in your book, non-racist and actually being anti-racist comes in? Because I might say, well, I don't believe that trope, but if I'm not doing anything to fight against it, I'm continuing to allow it to exist, correct? That's the idea is that being non-racist simply means you see the racism and you observe it, whereas being anti-racist means that you work to deconstruct it. So, yes, and and I think that what I think we have to understand, and I think this has to do with really what both sort of racism and even sexism is that when racism and sexism, or or if we want to focus on on racism, when it's the norm, when inequality is the norm, Mm. when you, when I, when when a person does nothing in the face of the norm, the status quo, what's going to happen? It's going to persist. 
And so what that necessitates is for people in order to create, you know, a different type of world, we we have to actively challenge the status quo. But I think in a, in a deeper sense, because it's difficult, particularly, I think, for Black people, or I suspect it's likely the case for women to talk about the ways that we've internalized um, some of the ideas of, about us. Mm. Because then people, if and if we talk about that publicly, the concern that people have is, so are, are you stating thereby that Black people are responsible for racism or as responsible as white people or, or, or women mm. because they've internalized some of these ideas that that they're just as responsible for, for, for patriarchy. And so my response to that is, is no, <laughs> no. What's actually the case is if you are a slave, if you're an enslaver, who do you first and foremost want to try to convince that, that Black people should be enslaved? Yes, you want to convince the, the, the white folks up North. Yes, you want to convince other uh, white folks in your area who don't own slaves, but who do you really want to convince? You want to convince enslaved people. Why? Because then that will prevent them from resisting. Mm. Then they will see racial inequality as normal, as something they can't change. And so the people who are most likely to resist won't resist because they bought into those into those narratives. Mm. And I, I, I think that sort of cuts across different bigotries. And and it doesn't just cut for, for, for you know, people of color or, or white people, either white or people of color, if they've bought into ideas of racial hierarchy, then they're going to look out at the society of, of racial disparity and inequity and not see a problem. And then they're not going to resist it. And ultimately, they're going to blame the people who are the victims of racism for that racism. And, you know, and that certainly happens with women as it happens with Black people. And so what I'm urging is us all, you know, everyone, to to actively challenge racism and to no longer be fooled by this idea of, of, of racial hierarchy. And I think you point to something so important. Racism and sexism and honestly, classism are these evil bedfellows. Because in the same ways that people will internalize a feeling of powerlessness or maybe hopelessness, so many of us look at the current system and say, well, what are we ever going to do about it? I'm just one person. How am I going to change it? Look look at the, the economy. What, what do you mean the, the Pentagon spends $22 billion a day? What's 20, what is $22 billion? Us, I think, as average people don't understand how to look at some of the size of this. And sometimes it's the size of the system that helps convince us we can't change it. But you argue so beautifully that we can, that if we choose to be anti the elements of the status quo, which are unequal and which do harm by being anti-racist, we can make the system better for everyone. And that feels like a really powerful point that you make because there are a lot of people, again, I think when we get into our like, I, I, I always use the term lizard brain and I don't know where that actually comes from. And I realize like, 
think a friend of mine once made a joke about how we evolved from newts and it turned into this thing that we say all the time, like, oh, well, when I'm in my lizard brain, you know, where you're just super individual, scared, where's my next meal coming from? Am I going to be warm tonight? You know, that thing that we all are capable of. We love the high level idea of creating an equitable system. We want people to be taken care of. And I think in our little lizard brains, we're all terrified that more for a group I may not know means maybe less for me. And you argue that that is, in fact, the opposite of what will happen, of what will be true, that if we can create an anti-racist society, we can undo so much of the oppression of the harmful policy that it will actually mean better for everyone. And that's something I don't think a lot of people get. And if I if I may make a, a generalization or perhaps just be vulnerable, I think a lot of us aren't willing to be vulnerable enough to admit that we're scared that maybe we'll run out. And we don't know how to reconcile that individual fear with our best hope for the group. But you say that there's yeah. data that proves that what's best for the group will be best for us all as individuals, correct? Yes, and and indeed, I, I just want to sort of underline something you said because we we talk we we were talking about the ways in which the eternalization of these ideas caused people to just look out at inequality as normal, mm-hmm. but then you also spoke about our internalization of this of this powerlessness and this hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And I think just as much we have to sort of see that the problem is racism and and not the groups that are uh, victimized by it, so too do we as individuals have to recognize our power. You know, even in How to Be an Anti-Racist, just as women are told they, quote, don't have power, Black people are told we don't have power. And I was like, absolutely. Like, where do we get this idea that, that we don't have power, that we don't have the power to resist, that every single person on earth has the power to resist. Mm. And, and, and we have the power to organize amongst ourselves and form, formulate larger sort of power blocks through our organizing. If there's anything we should have learned from the pandemic, it is that when we do what's best for the community— we're doing what's best for ourselves. Mm. I mean, that that's one of the central messages to me of the pandemic. And, and when we don't do what's best for the, the community, when we just do what we want to do, we're likely to spread the viruses of bigotry, mm. which is then going to come back and harm us. <laughs> like, and, and, and I, so I'm hoping that that people realize that, you know, and I hope people realize there's a distinction between individual freedom and community freedom. Mm. And and that really we're at we're at really war in this country between the individual's freedom to infect people and the community's desire to be free from infection. The individual's desire to be able to sexually assault people and and the community's desire to be free of sexual mm. you know assault the individual's desire to have the freedom to exploit people and and the community's desire to be free from from exploitation and and I guess I learned this largely from my ancestors who realized 
that the only way they were going to be free of chattel slavery was if the, the community was free. So individuals fought for what was best for the community, recognizing it was best for, for themselves. So this isn't even about people not thinking about what's best for themselves, but it's really people having a perspective that I'm going to fight for the community because that's what's best for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me, feels like a beautiful sort of symbiosis. Because listen, you know, People love to talk about individualism, American exceptionalism. You know, I always hear someone morbidly in a conversation about individualism quote, whoever said, you know, you're born alone and you'll die alone. I'm like, yeah, okay, but babies also die if they don't get held. We as humans, yeah. we are community creatures. We love to be together. We want to. We truly, you know, we evolved in villages and we still talk about our villages and and we need each other. And so this notion that when you're out of balance, if you're so obsessed with yourself that you forsake your community, you'll be miserable. But a, but, but a great balance is how do I do what's best for us, which is also what's best for me? That that to me feels like a harmony. That's the thing that makes me feel hopeful. It does. And, and I think to your previous sort of question, I think one of the greatest misnomers of of racism and its effect is that racism has only harmed uh, people of color. And, and I think more and more white people are beginning to realize the collateral damage or even the direct damage that they're suffering from racism. So there's going to be people this fall or next fall in a state like Georgia who are going to be white and Republican who are going to struggle to vote. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And for the first time, they're going to connect those voter suppression sort of policies that we've been talking about Mm -hmm. with their own life. And even though it made it even harder for Black, Brown, and Indigenous people to vote, it also made it harder Mm -hmm. For, for white Republican, particularly seniors and, and even students to, to vote too. And, or even something as, as even widespread as, you know, you, you have many parents of, of white children who, who wants what's best for their white children. And so they're like, I want the best neighborhood and the best school. And they connect good schools and good neighborhoods with the amount of white people in those schools and neighborhoods. And what they don't know is especially as it relates to the school, is studies show that white students do better in diverse schools <laughs> than they do in predominantly or homogenous white, white schools. In, in the major important measures like problem-solving skills, critical thinking skills, you know, racial literacy, but even standardized tests. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so by any measure, you have white parents who are sending their kids and advocating for segregated neighborhoods and schools, thinking it's what's best for their kids when it's actually not. And they don't know because they've been fed, you know, a different sort of story or, or people sitting back and, and comparing their lot to people of color in this country, particularly white people comparing their lot to people of color, as opposed to comparing their lot to white folks in Canada or France or Germany or England or Ireland, or the Netherlands, and asking, why do those folks have universal health care? Why do those folks, when they 
have a baby? Why can they have access to leave, to paid leave? Mm-hmm. Why don't we have that mm-hmm. here? Why are their lives better? <laughs> uh, and and people, but they can constantly compare themselves mm-hmm. to, to people of color as opposed to other white folks in other Western democracies. But that, I think, is the real the real lie and, and the insidiousness of how poisonous power can be. Because the power structure that was built that upheld 400 years of enslavement is is the same sort of version. You know, it's, it's bastardized and, and kind of metastasized. Um, but I think about, you know, my family coming here on a boat through Ellis Island and the discrimination they experienced, you know, being called ethnic slurs and and dirty Italians and all of these things, there was a very wealthy, small, white power structure that wanted to hoard wealth, maintain it in, in this sort of, you know, now it's the modern day billionaire corporate wealth class. It's very small. And they want the rest of us to look at each other as the problem rather than to say, oh, you're hoarding resources. You are you are exaggerating disparities. You are creating the greatest um, economic disparities we've had since the French aristocracy. And, and we're supposed to blame each other and not the very few people at the top who are literally impeding the opportunity for us to have universal health care, which, by the way, would be cheaper for us as a country anyway. So again, better for the community, better for us. It costs us far more in America to take care of sick people than it would cost us to keep people healthy. So I, I, I really, I love the way you talk about it because you, you offer us a pressure test of what we believe to simply be true. And I feel excited about the potential of what it would mean for us to begin rather than in our own little pockets of suffering or fear or or the moments of scarcity that as humans we all have, rather than to look at our neighbors and wonder who's got more, to look around the world and say, why can't we have systems like those that work so much better in those other places? And that I think is such a, it's such a wise argument you make because you, you let us remove ourselves from ourselves and our fear enough to say, oh, look, the system of racism here has hurt us all. So, so the moral desire that many of us have to see justice done and to see equity achieved also does align with our very individual, terrified you know, scarce selves that we, we, none of us want to admit we have that. None of us want to admit we're afraid we're going to lose it all tomorrow, but it's very human. And, and we can, in fact, you know, align the best of our, of our morality for all with the best of our preservation of self. And we could build a whole new thing. And that, that feels thrilling to me. And I'm curious, as the expert in the room, where do you think we should start? When you think about what we could do if we pushed toward true anti-racist policymaking for true equity, what are, the, what are the things that would be in your sort of laser sight, first and foremost? Well, first, let me say that I think when, when people 
think about what they would lose. They're, they're not thinking about that in a different type of society, if you do fall, we will be there to catch you. Mm. And in this society, they're, they're, the social safety net is, <laughs> you know, has been burned to a crisp, mm. right? And, and so you then would feel better taking risks, even in your own life, in your own career. Mm. Uh, but I think to your to your question, I think if I was to start in three different places, I think it, it would be with eliminating the growing racial wealth gap mm-hmm. uh, through through reparations. And it's the only policy platform on the table of the American people that has the capacity to, to eliminate, let alone reverse the growing racial wealth gap. And, and everyone knows that wealth is not just a present sort of phenomenon. It's an accumulated phenomenon. And, and everyone can understand how when we think of, if we're thinking about an approximate empirical sort of figure for the costs versus the benefits of the history of racist policies and practices, one of those figures would be the racial wealth gap. And, and this reparations program would not take anything away from white people. It would provide, going back to what you were talking about earlier, you know, economic sort of repair. But it wouldn't just be about, you know, ensuring that there's all sorts of economic repair. It would also be changing the story around why white people, on average, have 10 times more wealth than Black people. And it's not because there's something wrong or inferior with Black people. And so it would also be changing, you know, that story and and I think the other approximate figure that really details the sort of cumulative effect of racism is the life expectancy gap mm. and and how native and, and and black people have the lowest sort of like life expectancy you know in this country when compared to white people by by a few years and 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 a few years three or four years when you're talking about Tens of millions of people, uh, you know, is a lot of lives, uh, a lot of years lost. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's the cumulative effect of police violence. That's the cumulative effect of mass incarceration, the mm-hmm. cumulative effect of uh, food apartheid, of racial health disparities, of Black and Native people being more likely to live in polluted neighborhoods, mm-hmm. uh, whether air or water pollution. You know, that's that's the effect of uh, even uh, college-educated Black women being more likely to have severe complications in pregnancy than white women who dropped out of high school. That's that's the effect of someone, a superstar like Serena Williams, saying that there's a problem and people not listening to her mm-hmm. while others are, are listening to white women. You know, that's the cumulative effect of, of so many different sort of health-related and environmental-related problems that that we need to eliminate. And that's not, again, you know, because even the life expectancy rates of white people are falling. Mm -hmm. And so that's raising it for everyone. (laughs) The image that was coming to mind for me, which may seem strange at the start, but I promise we'll get somewhere, is, you know, this, this idea that unpacking what privilege is 
often means what hasn't stood in your way. And as you were talking about all of these issues, whether it's that black women face a maternal mortality rate four times higher than white women, um, when we're talking about, you know, the, the lack of inherited wealth because money was withheld generationally, all of these things, the, the image in my head was one of, you know, like athletes. I have no idea why I'm thinking about this because I am not a track and field person. I don't run unless I'm being chased. But I think about like pro athletes, maybe it's because you said Serena. You know when you see those videos of them in those weighted vests and, the, you know, it's like a Velcro thing and they, they put like weight bars in the vest to make it heavier and heavier. I think about how each each of those things you were referencing, each of these topical issues, each of these policies, uh, these generations of harm, each one feels like a little like a like a weight on the chest to me that holds entire communities down, that lessens life expectancy, that makes it harder to get your head above water. And some of us haven't had those weights placed on us, and some have. And the reality, yes, is that removing those impediments, changing policy, changing systems will be better for all of us. But I think my hope is that the people who are listening to you and I have this conversation today also understand that the notion that some people are drowning under weights that they didn't choose is just wrong. And we have to be committed enough to your earlier point to standing up for other people in the way we'd want people to stand up for us. If we want to be able to take a risk and be caught, we have to be willing to catch other people. And that, for me, is the point of being, as you challenge us to be actively anti-racist, is to say, I'm going to go out and actively try to work on removing these barbells of harm from my community. Maybe not my next door neighbor. Maybe I don't know the person who's suffering with this. Maybe I do. But we've got to advocate for each other. And you mentioned this, and I know it can be a, it's a very hot topic in the political discourse right now. But I will say, learning from you and so many other people about what reparations mean and look like, I believe it has to be one of the greatest causes of our lifetime. I, I had the supreme honor of attending the um, centennial of the race massacre in Tulsa. And there is a plaque across from the Vernon AME Church on Greenwood. And it details every unpaid insurance claim that was filed by every business owner who had their business burned to the ground and all I could think looking at that list was hundreds of people died on that weekend. How many business owners didn't get to file claims? How many families were run out of town? And yet there are all these names listed and all the insurance money they were owed listed. And in 1921, it was $2.87 million. So today through the most conservative financial model at a 5% return, even though everyone agrees it would be a 10% return, at 5%, we're talking $250 million. And at 10%, we'd be looking at $500 million. But when you talk about 
inherited wealth in white communities. And we look at Tulsa as a case study. And we look at $250 million that today would be in the hands of multi-generational black families that could have been reinvested in the community, that could have launched other businesses, that could have bought homes and accrued real estate, wealth and equity and all of these things. I think how could anyone deny what was literally withheld, stolen from so many families across this country? We have to make up for it because we have, we've stacked a scale so unevenly. And I, I know that Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote the case for reparations and he, he outlines his idea of what reparations in the, in the forms of target in, investments in communities and neighborhoods would look like. And I'm, I'm curious, do you have a Dr. Kendi reparations plan? Is there a place you think we should start and, and use as a case study? Or do you think it's an immediate national program? How, how do you think we move forward on this conversation? Well, well, first, let me just say, I, you know, I loved your analogy about the sort of weights and 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 literally, let's say you have two track uh, athletes trying to run a race, and 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 one is is weighted down, and the other doesn't necessarily know that the other is weighted mm-hmm. down, and, and I think for us to reflect on if those two track stars are representative of races, I guess we can think of, even though we shouldn't think of individuals as representatives, mm-hmm. but, but hold the, the analogy. If we believe that those two races are equals and we see one of the, 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 the person without the weights winning race after race, and we believe they're equals. Mm. Aren't we going to start thinking, what is actually going on? How does, if they're equals, should this person be winning time and again? Mm. So what's going on here? And then that would allow us to then begin inspecting what's actually happening mm. and then begin to see that the person who's losing, the race that's losing, it's because they're being weighted down. But if we don't believe they're equals then we won't even look mm. and try to search for those weights. And, and if we're, I should say, if we've been convinced mm. that they aren't equals. Uh, you know, but I, I actually don't necessarily have a, have a hard and fa- fast and specific sort of reparations plan. But what I would say is I do, I do believe that it should be geared towards eliminating the racial wealth gap, mm. that that should be one of the goals. Mm. I, I also uh, think that as part of a reparations plan, we should have an effort to to really mass educate the American people on the losses, as you just described, you know, in Tulsa, so people can see very empirically, mm-hmm. if possible, and certainly experientially, the costs of racism. Mm. Uh, specifically for, in this case, for, you know, for Black people. And so that people can see that the reason why Black neighborhoods are are impoverished is not because of Black people. It's because of this history. Mm -hmm. It's because of these policies. It's because of these practices. And obviously, 
any sort of serious reparations program would likely only emerge if we also were radically revolutionizing our society to rid it of the policies that are that are continuing the racial wealth gap today. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the refusal of even the Biden administration to cancel student debt is reinforcing the racial wealth gap. Studies show that you'd be able to cut through that racial wealth gap by by canceling student debt because student debt is disproportionately uh, people who are black. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're more likely to have higher balances. And there's a whole host of reasons for that. But but I, I guess what I'm saying is it, it would be paired with other efforts to eliminate ways in which inequality is being reinforced today. Mm-hmm. Is it conversations like that, you know, the the specifics that you are aware of and understanding that being able to quantify those things and, and give people that empirical evidence with human stories can really open hearts, change minds. Is, is that what led you to decide to start your podcast? Because you're interviewing some of the most fascinating people and whether it's uh, on topics of housing or sports, you're giving people a window into how these policies that we may not even be conscious of have shaped the world around us. So was that was that what led you there? Is, is it something you're loving doing? So I, I need some pointers from you because it's certainly something I'm learning <laughs> to do. But I, I am I am enjoying it in the sense that um, I you know like our conversation we're we're really able to spend some time digging really deeply you know into problems. Uh, mm-hmm with the eye towards thinking very clearly about potential solutions that we can rally around. And I think it allows me to to talk to people who are experts in voter suppression or who are experts mm-hmm. in queer sort of racism or who are experts in race and sport uh, or, you know, experts on prison abolition. So because I'm not an expert on all forms of racism, you know, my specific expertise is, is really on the history of racism, which and that history has come to bear on defining terms. Mm. And so for me, it's definitions allow us to have a perspective. Mm-hmm. And so when you pair the perspective with human stories and with facts, I think it allows people to really understand, you know, what's happening. Yeah, I think to personalize history and to give people touch points, I think is a really inspiring opportunity. I'm very excited about it for you. I Is there someone who's just a dream guest for you who you're like that's 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 the one on my list that I'm really hoping I can get to? Wow. Um well other than Sophia Bush. Um, <laughs> I mean, I consider this my RSVP. Just tell me where to be. <laughs> is there a dream guest and with this person would be living, I take it. I mean, uh, I don't know. Well, I think I I I always admire sitting down with with Angela Davis, mm. um, and you know I I can remember the first time we met and actually did an event together. I, I believe it was something like January tenth or eleventh, two thousand nineteen. It was literally the anniversary of the one year anniversary in which I had been diagnosed with with cancer. Um, and she's 
someone who is just strikingly brilliant and sharp, but also extremely down to earth and personable. Mm -hmm. But then also someone who's just been a defender of everyone from from women to queer people, to poor people, to prisoners, Mm -hmm. to, 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 to people of color, to to the working class. And and so to see and, and speak with someone like that and learn from someone like that, you know, I think whenever I've had that opportunity, it's always been, it's, it's always been a, just an incredible learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that, you know, an audience with Angela Davis is, is such a high moment. And I know that this work doesn't come without low moments. You have faced backlash over the years. I mean, you, you talk about the way that you know, your work is being criticized and and picked apart, particularly by the right. I mean, the rage that your honesty seems to be met with. I think about you and and Nicole Hannah-Jones and um, the scholars who I so deeply respect, who simply for telling the truth uh, are being attacked. And I, I wonder what keeps you going? You speak with such an authentic hope about people's ability to change. So what is it you see that keeps you going despite what's hard? I think there was a time in my life in which I did not understand why certain things were happening to me or even certain things were happening in society. Mm. And I think it was that lack of understanding that slowed me down or stopped me. And I think now I'm certainly not surprised that that people are attacking, you know, my work specifically by misrepresenting it. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is if you can't really argue against something, you just change the argument and argue argue against your new argument. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it, that's not so sort of surprising. And obviously it still hurts, but I guess I understand it. And that understanding, you know, allows me to sort of carry on that. If anything, I expected it. Mm. Right. You know, it's like, you know, you go in and in, in, in exercise and, and lift weights. It's going to hurt. <laughs> right. So you, 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 you I almost had an expectation and I remind myself what I'm doing. But I also know that that in order to bring about change, we have to believe change is possible. Change is mm. possible within people. Mm. And change is possible within society. And and, and I think that fuels me. And and I don't think anything that can happen to me or happen in society will will prevent me from believing in that possibility. Are there examples you look to when you think about those major moments of transformative change where you say, "If, if that person could do it or this policy could be taken apart, then I know we can continue? So I never forget a few years ago, I had a had a I was able to sit down and have a conversation with with Derek Black. Uh, Derek Black is the son of Don Black, and and Don Black created the website called Stormfront, which was the first white supremacist website, and still one of the major white supremacist sort of websites. And Derek Black's godfather was David Duke, and Don and Derek sort of raised. Uh, I should say Don and David raised uh, Derek to really usher the white supremacist movement into the mainstream. Mm. Uh, and and even in high school, he was just a captivating sort of speaker at, 
at white supremacist sort of conferences, had his own uh, radio show. He was really being groomed. Uh, But then he went to college. Uh, Then he Mm -hmm. started befriending people who were not white. Then he got into a relationship with a girl who who challenged him, uh, or a woman by that point. And over time, uh, those people who cared about him and loved him deeply and who he respected uh, were able to cause him to begin to change. Mm-hmm. And eventually he did. And, and, and now he's, even though he was raised and thought of as this sort of heir apparent to the white supremacist movement, now he's someone who's striving to be anti-racist, you know, like us. And so if he can change, if he can in a way, move past his, I should say, swallow, uh, obviously, uh, the type of relationship that was going to emerge when he decided to to leave the movement. Mm. If he could begin to transform himself, then why can't the rest of us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those, those people, when they explain how they began to see what's true, Give me a lot of hope that the rest of us can as well. When you go from one human example like Derek to the sort of macro 30,000 foot looking at policy, government, place, Mm -hmm. are there aspects of other places, other countries around the world where you say they're really doing it right? Are there specific examples you think we could borrow from? to build a more anti-racist United States? I think there are certain aspects of it. I, I, I think that the, the fact that uh, Germany begins teaching uh, kids as early as kindergarten, you know, about the Holocaust mm-hmm. uh, in, in, an, in an incredible seriousness to ensure that it isn't sort of replicated uh, and, you know, at this point in time when, when parents and, and, uh, are, are advocating against the teaching of racism, you know, other countries are, are teaching as, about anti-Semitism as early as, you know, kindergarten, if not earlier, uh, that's certainly something that, that we can look to. We talked about many of the social safety net programs that, that other Western democracies have. Part of the, the problem with many of these nations, they aren't typically collecting racial data. Mm. So so there's a benefit in terms of universal programs, but we have to pair universal programs with with programs that are specific to specific groups that mm-hmm. provide the, the most resources to the groups with the greatest needs. That's not necessarily something that, that I see other sort of countries uh, doing. I know there was a time... I think about 10 years ago, where where Brazil uh, decided that it was going to specifically uh, diversify its its higher educational system and institute an anti-racist policy, you know, to do it. But it's really few and far between. So what do you hope we do? Is there something you'd like to see happen in the next five years, you know, a, a sort of guiding light change or... Uh, policy that that you think would signify that we are on our way? I'll say two things. First, if we had a different response to rising levels of violent crime, mm. then that would signal something to me. 
if we had in, instead of the common punitive response of, of of more funding for for police, we had a response of hmm, what's what could be going on here? Mm-hmm. You know, is it that there are too many guns on the street and we're refusing to pass sort of gun safety? or gun control programs, you know, could it be that we just had an economic disaster through this pandemic? Mm-hmm. What are some of the other sort of problems? Let's fight violent crime with jobs mm-hmm. or with resources. Let's invest in in mental health resources, specifically since we have so many people who are dying of police violence who have, you know, have a mental disability or so many people incarcerated mm-hmm. similarly. I mean, that's that would show me something. That would show me that that we're turning the page on this connection of, of blackness and criminality that has so dominated our politics, that we're turning the page on there's something wrong with people into a recognition that there's something wrong with power and policy. Mm. Into a recognition that there's something wrong with power and policy. That's a beautiful sentence, my friend. Some of these are big level ideas. And for anyone who might be listening at home who's newer to this work, or even for the folks who've been in it for a minute, what would your suggestions be for how people can begin to start actively engaging in this kind of work? So what I would suggest is each of us typically live in a neighborhood or we're typically in a specific industry or sector or and and for us to to whether it's you know education or uh, media or environment or health, uh, we are likely to work in institutions. Um, and and for us to just really think about okay, who or what group is combating racism in my backyard, mm. and and how can I help them? Um, you know, if if each of us was was to think about that, and and then as I'm seeking to to figure out how I can support them, I'm also trying to to sort of understand that form of racism in and of itself. As I'm trying to understand racism in general through reading, through listening, through through educating myself. I mean, if we were to each do that, we can make some pretty significant changes in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm. So for anyone who's at home listening, if you haven't read How to Be an Anti-Racist, there's your first step. Step one. <laughs> it almost feels silly to ask, you know, how, how you feel like you're best inspiring others because you do so with your books. And clearly everyone agrees because they're all bestsellers. You're doing it with the podcast. Do you, on a, on a sort of more maybe one-to-one note, do you have advice for people listening who who look up to you is there something you wish you could you know share with people whether it was someone sitting across from you at a coffee shop or a group of students who might be listening to you speak at a university is there a piece of advice you'd offer I, I think that we have to be willing to be vulnerable not just because it really sort of showcases our humanity mm. and it connects us with with other humans. But it also allows us to recognize our flaws, our faults. Uh, it also allows us to 
to be self-reflective and self-critical. And mm-hmm. then it allows us to grow and be be a better form of ourselves and, and to constantly, you know, coming back a little bit better and knowing that when we make mistakes, we're making mistakes because we're human. Mm-hmm. And then we're choosing to sort of, you know, correct them. And I mean, that's how I try to sort of live. And I want to encourage other people to do the same, just to have the willingness to, and, and this isn't for us to sort of call ourselves, you know, fuck ups or something like this. It's not about that. It's, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, I made a mistake in the way I spoke to this person. I could have produced sort of this better. How am I going to correct it? Mm-hmm. And I think if we could all tr- sort of live that way, I, I think we could have a better sort of human story. It's beautiful. So much of the idea about vulnerability and and growth, really, to me feels like it is rooted in the potential of progress. And I'm curious, as it is my favorite thing to ask everyone who comes on the show, what in your life feels like a work in progress to you now? It's probably what is not. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like everything <laughs> is, is a sort of a work in progress. I think I could be a better writer. I think I can be more articulate. I think I can, you know, love better. Um, you know, I, obviously this society is a work in progress in, 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 in terms of, I thought, hoped, I should say, that we would be in a different place as a nation mm. right now when we were seated last June. Um Mm-hmm. I, I'm also, I think, trying to learn how to use time. Um, and I, I think that's also something that, that I think quite a bit about. And and not just time in a sense of sort of how to organize, but, but, but even like how to say no and yes to ensure that, you know, I'm strong enough to continue doing this type of work. And that's a work in progress. I mean, there's just... Just so much that's a work in progress. <laughs> yeah. Time's a big one for me, too. I, I feel you there. <laughs> and I will say thank you so much for, you know, giving us your time today and and bringing all of yourself to this space. I really deeply appreciate it. And I'm sure that everyone who's listened to this conversation today does as well. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you so much for having me on. Mm-hmm.